0: Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn
1: CE credits. Hello and welcome. I'm LeAnna McGuire, your host for this informative podcast on managing foodborne illness brought to you by Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare. Our subject matter expert today is Kirk Ornstein. He's RN, MSN, and clinical nurse leader, and a guy who's obviously really good at research. Welcome, Kirk. (laughs) How are you? Thank
0: you. Good, good. It's good to be here.
1: (laughs) Let's talk about specific foodborne illnesses. Uh, Botulism. Let's go to botulism. Um, What can you tell us about Botulism in general, and we'll get into some details in a few minutes.
0: Well, it's a little funny. Botulism is a little bit of—I I don't want to say—but like my one of my favorite pathogens because it's just <laughs> so bizarre. <laughs> um, it is. It, it's a life-threatening paralytic uh, uh, pathogen. Wow. Um, it is considered by some the most toxic pathogen on this planet. Um, one. One one millionth of a gram of the toxin it produces can kill somebody. Wow. A pint, a pint of this toxin can kill every person on this planet. So <laughs> yes. it's, right. So it's an amazing sort of thing to think about. Um, and luckily it's very rare. Um, only about 110 people a year get it. Um, but all of them, oh, not all of them, the majority of them are going to need medical care. Um, they're going to need what they have as an antitoxin um, to to not die. Um, the The hospitalization rate for um, botulism is eighty three percent. Fatality rate is a little under twenty percent. Um, and even with the antitoxin, the fatality rate is somewhere between five and ten percent. Um, so, and and seventy percent of these cases are pediatric or infant. Wow. Um, so that's you know, so that's so just so uh, amazing numbers to talk about. Yeah. One of the other amazing things about it is that it can take a spore form. Um, so this spore form is protective covering that allows it to survive in environments that it can't reproduce or grow in. But these spores can can survive for decades, um, so they don't go anywhere, and wow. both, and they're they're looking for an environment to grow in. Um, and one of the interesting things about it is that it likes an anaerobic environment, so an environment without oxygen, which is not your common characteristic of these type of pathogens right um, which leads it to 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 diff, to a different way that you get infected um it goes back to sort of the can issue that that is an uh, anaerobic environment, and it likes to grow there um So it takes these sort of um, these conditions to grow. Uh, Improper canning that people do now, because everyone's into you know being self-reliant and self-sufficient, but canning is a a perfect opportunity for botulism. Botulism to grow for infants. um, A lot of them get it from honey or honey-flavored pacifiers. Ah Um, because it will be a spore in the honey and just sit there waiting for an environment the honey itself becomes uh, a low oxygen environment and so it can it can grow and and be passed on to an infant that way interesting Um, yeah so it's it's really interesting very bizarre but at the same time there aren't many many there aren't many cases um which which is is good.
1: (laughs) Yes. Thank goodness for that. I I knew that children shouldn't have honey, but I wasn't, I wasn't clear that that was the reason why. So that's really interesting. Um, now it attacks, how does it attack? You said it's a paralytic, correct?
0: Right. So it's a, it's a neurotoxin, um, that will attack, obviously the, the nervous system. Um, and it, and it, and it's a, um, symmetrical, it it, it's, it presents in a symmetrical way, meaning it's working from the top down. So you'll see symptoms first in the head, the face, and go work its way down to the body. So um, droopy eyes, difficult swallowing, things like that will be the first sort of signs as it works its way down, paralyzing different parts of the body. Um, obviously, quickly what happens is that you're on a ventilator because you can't mm-hmm. breathe. Um, and that's usually what you see is that they're in the hospital on a vent, um, and basically doing best supportive measures on top of the antitoxin. Um, but that's how it sort of progresses. Children show it a little differently. Um, you know, they will initially be constipated and then, uh, have what's called flat, uh, flat expression. So when you talk to them or look at them, they don't respond with an expression. It's just flat, neutral kind of look, and that's how they start. Um, but it it works its way through the, through the system and paralyzing different systems from the top down.
1: Wow! So with the antitoxin, does it reverse in the same from bottom to top, or
0: no? It, it's it's really just it, as I understand it, it's binding with the toxin itself. Uh, so it's it's really more of a systemic approach. Um, gotcha. so you're looking so. You know it's not going to you wouldn't expect it to fix this pla this system first and that system um you're really stuck with waiting for that antitoxin to work, and they're still on ventilators and all the other supportive care um, and like i said it there, there's still a, a high fatality rate even after the the antitoxin administered
1: That's intense. I'm assuming different um Cultures would have more incidences of it than others.
0: Yeah, it, it, they do, but it it has more to do with um, the foods they eat and how they sort of process their food. Uh, because botulism is, is endemic in the society in the world, it's just there, um, waiting for an opportunity. So there's no special place. It's rather um, creating these low oxygen environments for it to grow. Um, Got it. So if you're doing that. That's where you'll see it,
1: okay, so uh poor canning i th- I think of a lot of my grandmother and everybody I have you know we all have people in our family that still do canning at home uh so wow, that's really important. go ahead, you were gonna say something
0: yeah th- there's an interesting one, so we're we're looking at all the different ways it could grow. one of the ones that kind of surprised me so it starts with these um low acid foods mm-hmm. um Bacillus likes these uh, low oxygen environments, low acid pools. So vegetables um, are a are possible um, place for them to grow. You won't really see it with fruits, where they're more acidic. You'll see it with vegetables. Well, one of the ones that came up was a, a baked potato. So if you have a baked potato and you wrap it tightly in tin foil, it is the perfect environment for Bacillus. Really? So yes. So which is really interesting because I'm as I'm looking at this. I'm like, what's in my refrigerator? And lo and right. behold, there are some baked potatoes wrapped tightly in the tin foil because that's how you cook them. You just put them in there if you don't use them. Um,
1: oh, wow. So that
0: was, yeah. So it was an interesting sort of sidebar to the whole
1: thing. But man, you're saving us all from potential disaster <laughs> here. <laughs>
0: it's really oh. Super rare, super rare. That's what you got to remember. Okay.
1: Good to know. Good to know. I'm glad. Um, any other interesting sources that that you'd know of?
0: Well, you obviously you have the, the foodborne, um, you have uh, the infant, um, but you also have the uh, iatrogenic, which is basically getting botulinum shot for wrinkles. Um, oh right, <laughs> right. So we forget about that. They're like, "Oh, it's my wrinkles. It's my yes. wrinkles." But yeah. you know, you're injecting botulism in there, um, and if not done right, you can get infected from that. Um, so yeah, it's, wow. a, it's a you don't think about it, but it's yeah, you're dealing with botulism when you yeah,
1: when you're doing that. that's right. Interesting. All right. Uh, goodness. Well, stay away from baked potatoes and Botox. No, I'm just. <laughs> No, I'm being, I'm being silly. No, are, learn how to can, right? You know, yes. Yeah. yeah, really be just being educated and aware. This is so helpful uh, on such a large scale. Okay. So there are different kinds. Are there different kinds in botulism or is it just one and done?
0: It's really just yeah, one and done. I mean, it, it, it presents in different environments, um, uh, but it, and it can get in in different ways, um. But it's really the same the same uh pathogen um it's not gonna vary very much other than how you're getting it, how it's being um presented to you,
1: sure, so could you get it in uh I'm thinking about the wrapped baked potato, so say you had a wound with a wound vac or uh something to that effect where um it's anaerobic to a sense, can it get introduced in that way yeah or is absolutely it, oh okay, but we're no, absolutely. We're, yep. Okay, we're concentrating on the foodborne piece, but I'm just thinking about that whole closed-in environment. And um, yeah,
0: there are a couple that we're going to discuss that have that issue related to wounds. How they? Oh, can get okay, in. okay,
1: all right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talked about the neurologic effect, effect, and the first signs for infants. But let's get into treatment. You talked about the antitoxin as well, but what else is uh, included in that process of diagnosis and treatment?
0: Right. Well, you know. The first thing is the mechanical vent ventilators. Um, they're going to be on that. Um, but on top of that, it's going to be these different systems. So you're going to be looking at uh, urine input-output um, as sort of a function of kidneys. You're going to be looking at the neurological um, assessments. So you're going to be looking at all these different systems to, to assess their ability to function um, and possible damage to these different systems. Um, and so, you know, that's what you're thinking about. You're going to be doing, um, EEGs, uh, to look at brain activity, um, and you're monitoring them all the way through because this can be a very slow process. It could be days. It could be weeks as they are just in the hospital and you are trying to, um, keep all the systems, um, you know, running as best they can. Um, and people can come out with damage to these different systems because of it. So, the earlier it's recognized, the earlier uh, you can get the antitoxin, the better the outcome.
1: Um, okay. And do they use um, neurological testing as well?
0: Yep. Yep. Uh, they use a, a tensilon test. So they're always looking at uh, those things. But it can mimic some other things like a uh, Bjorn disease because it's a neurological. Uh, Myasthenia gravis, another one neurological. Um, and so the trick is to make sure that you don't, um, you don't get misdiagnosed because right. it has these very overt neurological symptoms that they could be looking at for other things. Given it is so rare, um, the diagnosis will go to those other more common things. Got it. Um, and so that's, that's the big, fears that they get early misdiagnosis and then treatment is delayed and then health outcomes are are affected.
1: Right. That's interesting about the uh, Guillain-Barre, which is what inspired my question earlier about it reversing in the same way that it affects you neurologically, because that's right away where my mm-hmm. brain went, which uh, that's very interesting that it mimics that. Ooh, that's uh, that's interesting. Um, so all of these different ways to diagnose it, and you talk in the hospital, so um, you're assessing all symptoms basically. But what are the key ones that you want to be watching for?
0: Um, again, it's, it's really going back to sort of a uh, uh, respiratory functions, uh, neurological functions, cardiac functions. Um, you know that that's what you're really looking for. Um, because those are going to be, those are the life-saving um, um, systems that, obviously, if not maintained, sure. um, you're looking at severe disability afterwards.
1: Correct. And um, the other thing I was wondering about is with the antitoxin, uh, first of all, do we have mass availability to that? Like, Does every facility hospital have, I wouldn't think, given the incidence, that they would have a lot on hand? Or am I no, yeah,
0: they, okay. they don't um, uh, as I understand, they actually have to request it uh, from the cDC. It's not something that uh, um, you know is in your med card or sure. um, yeah, <laughs> it's right not, it's not there, okay um, yeah, so you're gonna have to go out local health department request it there CDC request it there, um but it you know it's it's there, but you gotta go get it,
1: okay. And is there a possibility of, of uh, anaphylaxis with, the, with uh, the antitoxin?
0: Well, I think that's a concern with sort of any medication again, sure. right. Um, you know, and with sort of an individual in that state, um, you know, there's going to be a risk, but clearly uh-huh. the risk is uh, of anaphylaxis much less than the risk of um, not administering it. Okay. Um, So that doesn't really come into play. And and there's unlike a, for a bee sting where, all right, got a bee sting. I know I'm allergic. There's no um, prior history to, uh, to sort of assess whether they would, would have a reaction.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, That's, that's a good point. Good point. And
0: honestly, they're already monitoring the issues that would, that would come up if you had a reaction. Uh so you already monitoring the ble- breathing and all the other conditions that anaphylaxis would cause. Um, if it happened and they're already on a ventilator, well, it's, it's a bad place. Um, you know, you would have some issues there. Um, but, you know, you're in the best place if it does happen.
1: Right. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Uh, so uh, when we can our own stuff, I know I keep thinking back to my grandmother. She would just put it on a shelf uh somewhere. Um, but probably the fridge is the best place if you are doing that. It might would I be correct in that assumption?
0: Well, canning canning's uh an interesting oh. thing. So um, you know, there are a couple of things with it. One obviously is a, a heat element to it, but there's another one which is the pressure element because the heat's not going to get rid of it. It's the heat and pressure that does it. Um, it interesting um in 2018 Three people in New York City got botulism because of poor canning. Really? Um, Yeah, it was an interesting little story. So uh, an individual's refrigerator broke, and they had some vegetables, didn't want them to spoil. So they had a recipe for canning peaches, peaches being more acidic. um, But instead, they used it to can um, vegetables. And so they attempted to can the vegetables. They, They... cooked them the way they're supposed to. They sealed them the way they were supposed to. Um, after that, they the individual looked at the seals on the jars. Two were fine. One was not. So the individual put that third one into the refrigerator, thinking refrigeration is good, um, and ended up serving that in a mixed into a salad. So three people got botulism. All three ended up at the hospital on ventilators. Wow. Wow. Um, so again it's rare but it happens um and it it it, it's a little mistake if it had been um, heat and pressure in the canning process and the seal was good probably would have been okay but um you know doesn't work out that way sometimes
1: yeah and that was just four years ago yep so anything like like homemade oils anything like that really could right Okay.
0: Wow. Yep. Anything that kind of creates this low oxygen environment um, is is susceptible to to the growth of botulism.
1: What about meats?
0: Uh, you know, again, it's not as common in meats, um, but it doesn't mean it can't be there. Uh, it, it really has to do with um, that environment. So, another incident, actually, in 2021. This is in Ukraine, um, but. Uh, bring it up because it was related to dried meats. Oh, okay. Um, 98 people were sick, 10 died, and 79 got the antitoxin. Um, they traced it back to uh, dried and salted um, freshwater fish. Mm. Um, so that doesn't sound like your classic environment, but that's, that's where, where it grew.
1: Wow. That's a 98 people. That's incredible.
0: Yeah, that's a yeah for for um botulism. That's a big outbreak.
1: Yeah, it's huge. Uh, okay, norovirus. Not that are we? I don't even know if I'm ready to move on yet. But uh, <laughs> botulism. I'm. I mean, I'm really intrigued by this topic. It's uh, fascinating, and I've learned a lot already. But let's go to norovirus. Um, what can you tell us about that?
0: All right, so. Norovirus is your most common foodborne disease. Um, it's, it, it is endemic everywhere. Um, it is an oral fecal uh, transmission. It is what they call, when someone talks about the stomach flu, uh-huh. that's generally what they're talking about. Um, it can be transmitted through uh, aerosoled, aerosolized um particles from both diarrhea and vomiting. Mm. Um, it can live on surfaces for days. Um, so the ability to uh, transmit this uh, virus uh, is is easy. Um, that's why you always hear about these stories that when there's, especially in the cruise ships, you get an enclosed environment like that, it spreads everywhere. Um, and so it's easy for for someone to pick it up. You touch something, put it near your eyes, mouth, you've got it. Um, And so this is very easy to transmit. It can um, survive in in environments for a long time, um, and it gets out there. And once it's uh, going, um, you know, without proper sanitation and the protective measures, it's going to keep spreading.
1: Yeah. Wow. Those floating buffets Uh, (laughs) are Yeah. danger zones. Yeah. <laughs> and I would, ass- again, I'm assuming, but there's got, there's obviously more cases of this on an annual basis than there would be botulism. I mean, it's not right. Well, this happens a lot. I'm,
0: yeah, no, there are uh, estimated um, more than 5 million cases per year. Wow. Uh, 14,000 end up in the hospital uh, and you get, uh, you know, more than a hundred deaths a year. Um, so, you know, because of the number, wow. the large number of people who get sick, it it translates into a large number of people being hospitalized. Um, and so it, it's a it's a tough one. I mean, it's you know the the onset's quick. Um, you're yeah, you're throwing up. You're having diarrhea. Yeah. Uh, and you're giving it to everyone in your family.
1: Right. And you know I'm not. Picking on cruise ships because it can happen anywhere. I just want to put that out there. Obviously, it can happen anywhere. Do we have any statistics on a global scale for this?
0: Um, so the WHO suggests or estimates that there's 125 million total cases, uh, 35,000 deaths associated with it.
1: Really? That's staggering. Yep. That is yep. well, something you know, else. It,
0: it becomes a numbers game. Um, you know, the more people get it. The, the higher the number of people who are going to be who are going to get severe um, cases and obviously end up in the hospital, um, it's it's one of the things that's a little bit problematic with uh, the numbers when you look at them um, because it makes it seem like it's it's very virulent and you're going to die from it um, because so many people go to the hospital. But but like I said, it's really a numbers game. If you get enough people infected with it, you're going to get these huge numbers of hospitalizations and deaths. Um, but regardless of that, you know, huge numbers of people are actually getting it and getting very sick.
1: Right. And uh, um, the uh, vulnerable populations that we discussed related to botulism, more vulnerable here as well, right?
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah. That, is, that is the theme across all of these, that when we talk about these deaths, um, we're really Talking about these vulnerable populations that are make up the majority of them, um, and so as we talk about how different these these different pathogens are, you really come to realize how similar they really are, mm-hmm. and the precautions that go into it, um, you know that that you need to have in place echo each other.
1: Yeah, and the immunos, the immunocompromised. Uh, I mean, that obviously includes transplant patients. I think sometimes we forget that because they can. Uh, we don't, I don't know, maybe that gets missed sometimes, but that's a huge piece of it as well. And it's, is it water as well? Is this just food?
0: Oh, uh, it's, it's anything that gets contaminated. So because, oh, okay. um, right. Because, uh, you know, you can cough it up, vomit it up, you know, diarrhea, um, you get it into the water, it's going to spread, right. um, you know, any sort of, uh, uh aquatic environment that gets this into it can spread it to anyone who's bathing in it, drinking it, using it to cook. Um, again, cooking is a little different because if you get it to a certain temperature, you're all right. Right. But again, it goes back to that appropriate temperatures for different for foods. Um, they need to get to that correct temperature to kill the different um, organisms.
1: Right. Right. Um. And. Where it's you lose a lot of fluid and electrolytes uh, through this process again, same kind of thing, right? So, is it more small intestine, uh, large? Where where's most of the effect on this?
0: Generally, it- when you're talking about yeah, generally when we're talking about um, diarrhea, we're talking about the large intestine, because that's the place where you're going to be reabsorbing the water, put it back into the system after you digest your food. Uh, when you get uh, these pathogens. And we talk about watery diarrhea. It's it's all coming from that uh, large intestine, the colon, that is should be reabsorbing it, but instead, either your body's dumping it out, or your body's actually putting more fluid into the colon to dump out. um, Depending on how it is, but that's uh, yeah. Either way, should be reabsorbing that.
1: Yeah. Okay. What about? uh, Can you talk to me about or us about the incubation period? How long after you or how that Process works when you're exposed. When you start having symptoms,
0: right? So generally, the symptoms they're one to two days. Um, That's the incubation period, one to two days. Uh, it's re- relatively quick as far as the onset, although there are others that we're going to talk about that are much quicker. Um, and it lasts two to three days. It's going to last a little longer with kids. Um, for the most part, it's just best supportive measures you're just trying to stay hydrated and it will pass Um, and basically keeping your environment clean so you're not passing it on to anyone else Mm. Um, so for the most part it goes unrecognized because in that time frame of a couple days most people aren't going to seek medical attention they're going to stay in bed um, try and drink their Gatorade or Pedialyte and just rest Um, and by the time a couple of days have passed, they're starting to feel better. They're not going to go see a doctor. Um and again, that's the case with most of these. Like all of these conditions go un, un- underreported because of that uh, dynamic. Sure. That if they just get through a couple of days, mostly are going to recover.
1: Right, right. So this goes back and speaks uh very very highly of hand washing. Those employees must wash their hands. The food prep has got to be a vulnerable place for this to happen.
0: Right. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that uh, formal, for, first and foremost is that hand hygiene. You, you keep them clean, um, and a lot of the stuff will not be transmitted. Um, but there's, there's another issue with sort of these foods is that how many times you actually touch them. Mm. And so we think about just hand washing, but in some cases, it's more than just that. It's the number of times you touch the food.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um so, so when we think about food prep, um a lot of times you want to think like let's do all the food prep at one time together to minimize the number of times you're touching it. Um because there's a certain things like uh um staff, staff, aureus, where it's on our bodies. It lives on our body. And so the number of times we touch something are increased the number of times something that lives on us uh can get onto the food. Right. Um, and so So, you're looking at that, too. Um, Staff is a little weird in that sense that sort of lives in us. It's the one that, one of the few ones where we're not going out and getting it from the environment. It's already here.
1: Wow. We just carry it around, just in case. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Have there been been any, uh, (laughs) just have that in my back pocket, any um, specific cases or outbreaks that you can tell us about uh, related to this, like you mentioned? You had a couple, but... Earlier with botulism, yeah. What
0: to you mean for norovirus? Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's funny. There, there was uh, this year an outbreak um, of norovirus related to oysters that were distributed from uh, British Columbia. Oh
1: Canada. wow!
0: Um, yeah, so it's an interesting one because normally we're going to talk about um, a different pathogen that affects oysters, but this was a case where. Um, these oysters were distributed to 13 states, 192 people got sick from it. Um, there was no recall issued. And when you hear that, what that really means is that by the time they figured out what was going on, the product was already sold and gone.
1: Oh, um, yeah. So, there you go.
0: yeah anyway, so this thing gets tracked back. And by the time they figure it out, uh, there's no more of these oysters. And everyone who got sick has gotten sick and they're all gone. Um, but. It takes time, like I said. It takes time to track this stuff back. There are a couple of different ways they do it, whether it's epidemiological data or the track back by like lot numbers and distribution centers. Um, but it it just takes time. Um, but that was one of the most recent ones.
1: So does anything happen? For example, the the people who had the oysters and sold them to all of these states, do they have any? Is there any kind of repercussion for them, or it's just? Oh, I'm sorry, those are all gone now. Oh, okay,
0: um, right. Yeah, it, it depends. Um, you know, if if there's an issue with the processing, if there's an issue with some sort of hygiene, if there's issue with uh, distribution, let's say that uh, the truck taking the, the product somewhere, wasn't refrigerated, um, there can be penalties based on that. Um, and so, but it really depends on, on the source or the, the, the environment that the uh, contaminated food was shipped. Okay. Um, you know, okay. There, are, there are certain cases where they're testing their food, but at the same time, you can test something and it's negative for whatever you're testing for, but right next to it is something that's positive. Because they're not testing every piece of food. Sure. Uh, they're doing sort of sampling. And even that is is pretty rare. The idea that you're doing sort of on-site farm surveillance doesn't really exist. Okay. Um, and that becomes a, becomes a problem later on when we talk about how the world's evolving. Um, it's easy to miss stuff because we're not at the source.
1: Right, right.
0: We're always playing catch-up.
1: Yeah. So th- it's not just, a, okay, it's gone. There is some level of investigation afterwards, just in, as, as a preventative measure, so it doesn't happen again, we would, we would hope on some level.
0: Right. Okay, right. good to but know. They're always doing, they're always doing uh, analysis afterwards, a post-analysis to see at what point could this have been fixed? Where was the gap? Um, so that's occurring with regardless of whether the outbreak resulted in a recall or an alert um, they're still looking at at those gaps because if it happened here, it's going to happen somewhere else.
1: Right. The old root cause, root cause yep. analysis. Gotcha. Yep. Okay. Uh, any specific treatments in severe cases of this, anything you can, Hi- deep rehydration, obviously.
0: Yeah. Th- basically that's what we're doing. One of the things with a lot of these is that, um, you know, treatment beyond rehydration, beyond um, sort of the, the, the support that you would do with this, treatments get a little tricky because sometimes if you give antibiotics, um, that can cause uh, the actual problem to uh, become worse. Um, antibiotics can address the infection, but at the same time, it can clear out the natural gut flora, allowing whatever you're trying to get rid of to grow. You know, so it doesn't have anything to compete against. Or it could be that you give antibiotics, kills the bacteria, but then the bacteria releases all the toxins, making it worse. Um, So in most cases, they're actually not treating um, with any sort of uh, therapeutic other than, say, rehydration, IV fluids, and that would be the extent of it. Um, In only the most severe cases, they start to try to address it uh, through some sort of medical intervention, uh, like an antibiotic or, you know, Antitoxin kind of
1: thing. Is it a good idea if someone in your household is uh, in the midst of this uh, norovirus that they isolate a little bit with their own bathroom? And if if it's possible, keep them in their own space.
0: You know, it, it's it's funny you mentioned that. Like a couple years ago, no one would ever talk that way. Um, right. The idea that I it's isolate true. in your house, who does that? Why <laughs> would you do that? But, you That's know, now it's like, hmm. That's yeah. a really good idea, <laughs> uh, and so, so yes, it, you know it is good because the more you interact with other people, the more likely you are to contaminate them, surfaces, um, environment, um, you know. So, so yes, it's always good um, with any sort of uh, any of these pathogens that can be uh, transmitted through, say, aerosolized, you know, vomit, fecal matter, stuff like that. A bunch of these don't work that way, so you don't have to worry about it, but something like norovirus, yeah, that would be a totally appropriate thing to do.
1: And that person should not be making lunch for the kids or...
0: Right. Well, you know, that's also sort of funny that that idea ends up on the list of like precautions and you want to think that's common sense. Right. Oh yeah, I'm sick. I really shouldn't be preparing food because I've been throwing up and I'm, you know, having diarrhea. Um, But People don't necessarily think that way, and sure. so that that idea ends up on this list for nurses to teach, you know, families about what they should do if somebody's sick.
1: Right. Wow, it's amazing. Yeah, you're right. They don't think about it. So food prep, uh, maybe isolate if possible. Wash your hands, wash your hands, and wash your hands basically, and clean surfaces. I would assume, right? You have to clean those surfaces.
0: Yeah, well, that clean surfaces is really important because a lot of these. Uh, pathogens can, like, you know, we know about uh, chicken and salmonella, things like that, a drop of that on a table. And if you don't notice it, easily contaminate the next thing you put down. Right. Um, so that idea of clean utensils, trying to separate, of your meats from your vegetables becomes very important. Um, and most people don't really take it to heart how important that is. Um, that when you're, you're preparing meat, chicken, something like that. That environment that you just worked on needs to be clean before you put down the salad gotcha. or any vegetable you're going to be cooking.
1: Gotcha. Um, and
0: people don't take that into consideration as much as they should.
1: Right. Clorox wipes best,
0: or it, it, it depends on on what you're looking at, but but pretty much anything's going to work. Um, you know, it, Windex will work, Clorox will work. Um, You know, it's just, it's just trying to keep that surface clean.
1: Let's go to salmonella. I know that that got mentioned a little earlier on, uh, on our first podcast, uh, part one of this series, and it was related to chicken, but we're going to, we're going to dig into this topic. Um, So it can cause, uh, it can cause a foodborne illness, correct? Or it is a foodborne illness. It is it or it causes it? Both.
0: Uh, It causes a a foodborne illness. Gotcha.
1: Okay. All right. Perfect. And uh, what can you tell us about it specifically, salmonella? Well,
0: uh, in the initial introduction, we talked about uh, uh, Alexander the Great, and he died of a typhoid. Um, So that is one type of salmonella, but it is really rare here in the United States. Um, So we don't really need to talk about that. Okay good. Um, the other salmonella that we all are familiar with uh causes almost a million cases a year. Uh there are 19,000 hospitalizations um and there's 378 uh deaths. Really? Um I, again these are estimates but that is yes yeah, so it is very uh prevalent and uh, an, an, uh obviously a high number of deaths associated with it mm-hmm. and hospitalizations.
1: Right. Uh, yeah. I know we hear about it uh more frequently than we do most others, it seems to me, but, uh, that is, that's pretty amazing. And, um, is it, co- so it's common, but is it considered to be one of the most common or
0: where would you place yeah. it? Oh, yes. it is. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's definitely one of the most common, uh, foodborne illnesses. Um, and you know, it comes from most, I think we all know it's coming from uncooked meats and mm-hmm. eggs, uh, egg products. Um, and so it's, it's, easy to come in contact with uh it's very prevalent in the environment um and people get sick one of the nice things or one of the good things it's it's not uh the fatality rate is low oh good so or, so although the numbers we talk about 378 deaths which is a huge number for foodborne illnesses um that actually rate the fatality rate is very low um, oh, good but, we're, you know, but if you get enough people sick, you're going to get these deaths regardless. Um, and so so you see these numbers, they, you know, every year. Right. One of the things that uh, we talk about, as I was just talking about um, eggs and egg products, uh, we're seeing more and more of these atypical um, sources. And so what's happening is that we're seeing many more infections from um, from fruits and vegetables. That you normally wouldn't see or hadn't seen in the past. Uh, part of that is due to um, cross contamination. Uh. So basically, when foods are being processed close to each other, um, they will they can cross contaminate each other. Um, we have uh, situations where it come come from the animals, so they can contaminate the, the fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're seeing a lot more of that sort of atypical source.
1: That's really interesting. Um, so, if the if if you're preparing the chicken next to the vegetables, even if they're cooked, there's still potential.
0: If which is cooked,
1: the, the vegetables, or at, say that say the salmonella is from the chicken, and you handle the vegetables, and then you put them in the oven, for it, example,
0: you well, cooking will. Will kill it. Um, so okay. obviously, we want to cook it to the right temperature. Um, but to that point, if let's say that somehow the chicken contaminates the vegetable, um, that vegetable needs to be taken to the same temperature that the chicken would
1: gotcha. be. Gotcha.
0: That may not happen. Right. Um, you know, so we're not taking it to, I mean, I, I, we, in vegetables, you can take it to, but it's 165 degrees. And so we know to do that for the chicken, but if somehow that chicken juice gets on the vegetables, I don't know who's, who's cooking it to that level.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Um, and even if the vegetables were contaminated from um, from water, water was sort of animal fecal matter, um, you know, so you're gonna have the same problem.
1: Food for thought, pun intended. <laughs> we will go. All right, so that's that's um, salmonella and its it, is it just food, it's the only place, right? That we get this from. I know foodborne, but right. can you get right? Okay. And it causes. Well, it's sco- going to
0: be that same, like, so the same way it's a fecal oral. And so potentially you could communicate it to someone else with poor hygiene.
1: Got it. Um,
0: but it doesn't have that. That happens, but that's not the, the main route. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about that is that as your symptoms pass, you can still shed. Uh, Ah, uh, the salmonella, salmonella organism um, through your feces for weeks afterwards. Wow! So there is always that potential of contamination with this because it, it sticks around, even though um, you know their door, the onset is rapid. It's like can be as, as quick as a couple hours, six hours to a couple days, um, and the duration is short. Uh, so you look like you're healthy, you can still shed these uh, the organism for weeks on end. Wow. All right,
1: and again, I mentioned this in the uh, first part one of this um, series: the vulnerable populations who are more susceptible, right? So infants, right. People over sixty-five, immunosuppressed, etc. Correct?
0: Yeah, that that is just a common theme throughout this. Um, gotcha. And I, you know, it's one of the problems that you just don't. It's hard to keep your guard up all the time, especially yeah. these these special. These vulnerable populations, mm-hmm. um, and it's a tough thing to do. Um, and you know, if we could, we would see less deaths. But for someone who's immunocompromised or, or or pregnant, the list is endless of foods you need to consider and and processes that you need to implement to stay safe.
1: Right, right. And developing countries would they be more vulnerable than we are to this? Just given the nature of it,
0: it it's an interesting question. Um, you would think that might be the case, but in fact, there are a lot that's su- a, a lot of data that suggest because they they have higher exposures, they tolerated better than say wow. a, a, a more developed country. Yeah, so potentially people more developed have less exposure, so then their initial exposure is much worse than someone who's had it a couple times. Okay, um, so yeah,
1: that makes perfect sense. So the symptoms resolve when you said how you can have symptoms for how long did you say and then it can one stay to in two your, days. One so to it, two days. Okay. It, it,
0: yeah. So the whole um, onset and resolution of symptoms occurs pretty quickly, but this has this lingering um, attribute that uh, most people don't think about. Sure. Um, and for the most part, it doesn't really matter. I mean, as long as you're wash your hands when you go to the bathroom, there's not really an issue. Yeah. Um, but it's something you don't really think about. Um, and this is also that situation where you can't treat with antibiotics because you potentially make the situation worse mm-hmm. by clearing out the gut flora, leaving it open for, um, for additional growth of, of the salmonella.
1: Right. Pathogen. And uh, nausea and vomiting. Um, and, uh, and diarrhea, are there any other symptoms that may be present with this?
0: Uh, you can also get, uh, cramping, fevers, headaches. Okay. Um, and those are some of the ones that you would see, but you wouldn't see those without the, you know, the, the nausea, vomiting, diarrhea situations.
1: Is it just GI or can it affect other systems?
0: Right. So it can, if it can get outside, uh, the intestinal GI tract, it can create, um, things like osteomyelitis, uh, sept- it can be septic and meningitis. Um, and that, that's the case. Of a lot of these that you'll see that if they can get outside, uh, the gut, then they can cause some real damage.
1: Okay.
0: Um, so as we talk about these, these situations and symptoms and severity, uh you pretty much uniformly if they get outside of that system, they're gonna cause some real damage beyond and, just nausea.
1: Got it. Or and, vomiting or diarrhea. Sure. And and some ways that it might get outside of that system.
0: Well, you know, you can talk about a perforation can get outside of that, or as we talked about it, you can get it in through a wound, mm-hmm. which will give it, keep it put it in through a, a different area so it wouldn't be in the system. Um you know, so there are different ways you can get it potentially into the urinary tract. Um, and so right. we can, yeah. So, you know, if you can find a different entry point, um, yeah, it can start to, to wreak havoc on different systems.
1: Okay. And the treatment, we said antibiotics not generally used, um, but otherwise,
0: what is used? It's basically fluid. Fluid refl- replacement. Got it. And that's what you're, again, looking at to try and just manage the symptoms sure. um, and keeping that from getting severe to the point that you need medical attention.
1: Yeah. And the, and the preparation of food, I, was, I don't know why I'm surprised at eggs, but I'm surprised at eggs. So if someone orders their eggs, uh, um, you know, sunny side up, or is that, uh, are they more at risk than a hard boiled egg, for example?
0: Yep. If that yolk is soft in any way, um, there's a potential for uh, an infection
1: there. Wow. Okay. I'm going to have to order my eggs different ways now. I just decided on that. <laughs> any <laughs> outbreaks that you can share with us? I don't know why I go to these horror stories, but I know you had a couple with no, the they're... others.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I've got one for So oh, this year they had um, um, Jiff peanut butter.
1: Jiff peanut butter.
0: Wow. Yep. Twelve states, sixteen cases, two hospitalizations, a recall issued, um yeah, so it got into the processing of that um of that peanut butter,
1: wow, and again, probably figured it out after people had gotten sick that that's uh been a real eye opener for me on that, wow, huh, I have to change my peanut butter? no, I'm just kidding well,
0: <laughs> no, but it, you know that could be anywhere because it's in yeah. The, the processing of that product. Yeah. Um, so it, you know, it, it it wasn't a sort of environmental issue. It got in there at the time that that was being made. Sure. Um, and so that sort of speaks to the issue about processing. Um, how how do you keep those environments clean from these these different pathogens?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned and we that. We don't have. Yeah. So we're, uh, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to draw attention to, to Jiff peanut butter or cruise ships like we did in the last episode. Cause you're, to your point, it literally can happen anywhere. It's just, uh, mm-hmm. it's just bad, bad uh, situation. So um, that's interesting. Anything else you want to share about salmonella before we move on to something that um, I think the next one is the one we carry around all the time. Yep. Which would be staff.
0: Um, yeah. Well, you know, I wanted to say this, uh, the, the cookie dough. Cookie dough. Um, cookie dough. It don't eat it. It's not raw. It's you know potentially a source of salmonella. Um, that
1: makes sense. Yeah. You
0: know The eggs in it. We all love that cookie dough, but the reality is it's, it's raw.
1: Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So and, you can get cookie dough ice cream and get the same effect and not hopefully have the that well, you know, I
0: wonder about that. You'd have to sort of look at that because they say it's cookie dough, but is it really or is it some sort of concoction that mimics cookie dough? Um, I can't imagine that uh, the FDA would allow an uh, ice cream company to sell a product that has raw egg in it.
1: Right. No, um, I can't imagine that either. Yeah, that's right. that's true. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing we survived knows? our survived our childhood. I'm still thinking about my grandmother's canning and now licking the spoon when she made cookies. It's just all pretty scary. <laughs> We're lucky. <lying. Yep. laughs> yeah, right. You think about all
0: that stuff when you're a kid. You're like, yeah. oh, that wasn't smart. Oh, that wasn't <laughs> smart.
1: <laughs> exactly. This is very educational for sure. Let's talk about staff now, okay? Because this is the one that you told us we carried around. It's with us all the time. So, um what can you tell us about that?
0: Right. So. Um, staph is uh, an organism, organism that lives on our skin, lives in our nose. Um, 25% of all people have it on them. For the most part, it doesn't affect anyone. Um, it's just with us and, uh, you know, isn't much of a problem. But it still can cause these foodborne illnesses. Um, and it also has the added issue of, since it's in, on your skin, it can enter your body through a wound. Oh, sure. Um, So not only can you get it through sort of a um, handling of food, but you can get it into uh, your body through a wound. Um, And this is also that case I was talking about before, like the number of times you touch something. Um, Because it exists on our body, uh, that the number of times you touch something becomes a risk that isn't quite the same as the other pathogens. Where the other pathogens, wash your hands, and you just and you can assume it's gone, um where um staff is not like that. it's on us, it stays on us, um you know you clean your hands and you reduce the number, but to say that you have sort of sterilized your hands and not there at all um sort of is an is an oversimplification of what's really going on
1: mm, interesting, um, yeah. So I know that in some of the foods, I think uh, botulism was one where you had to be cautious of odor. Like if you open something and it smells bad, you know, those times when you open something, you say, I don't know, do you think it's good? Probably good to always err on the side of caution. But with this, is it the same thing?
0: Right. So in general, if you smell something that's not right, just you get rid of it. Um, But with this, there is no associated smell that you could... Identify with or suggest there's something wrong here, um, so it, it's it doesn't have that ability to identify um, that we we like that as humans we want. Oh, doesn't look good, doesn't smell good, you know, you get rid of it. Um, this is something you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to identify.
1: Wow. Okay. So you're uh, just taking taking a chance. What are some of the most common foods? All foods, or are there some that more common than others?
0: Um, you know, it's, so it's foods that are being handled a lot. Um, so you can talk about like meats, they talk about pastries. Um, they they really talk about, um, I don't want to say meat size, like deli meats, what we're talking about.
1: Okay. So things that have so... already been
0: processed, uh, that are now fully cooked, um, ready to be served. It, it's these type of, um, products or foods that are more likely to get infected with uh, staff, um, you know, because staff can be uh, killed by cooking. Okay. Um, that's so, good. so if you're cooking your food, wouldn't expect to get that. Um, it's more the handling of food by someone who has it and then given to somebody who potentially is at risk. Okay. So that's what you'll see. Okay. Um,
1: An example. And there, are, you know,
0: the, it's yeah, it was um a
1: horror story. I shouldn't say horror story. That's the bad way to put it, but a real life yeah, well, scenario.
0: All right. So I got it. This is an interesting one. Um, <laughs> so in California, Coachella, the Coachella event, a uh, hundred bus drivers got sick from a catered event. Oh, no. So, yeah. So it was the handling of the food um, served to this sort of Enclosed group. It was just this group that was there and they all got served it and they got sick with it Um, But again, like no one's really dying from this one uh, But they're getting sick from it. The interesting thing not interesting, but something to recognize is that as we talked about the CDC and these outbreaks this is something that wouldn't register with the CDC because it occurred in one state. Even though it was massive, ah. it was one state, it doesn't reach that level of multi-state sort of outbreak. So it still would have been dealt with as a foodborne outbreak, but it would have been dealt with by the state health department. Uh, and they would have done the um, the investigation and, and uh, the identification of the
1: source. Good to know, good to know. So someone could be in one place and be handling something, uh, pick it up and then go to work in a restaurant for example, and here we go, or a yep. catering event.
0: Yeah, in this in this in this particular situation, it's very much about the handling of the food. Um, you know, cooking it's great, but it's really the the post cook and the post processing is when that's going to show up, where that transmission is going to occur.
1: Okay, and signs and signs and symptoms of staff uh, foodborne illness, as opposed to they differ from the others we've spoken about so far? Mostly GI, um, I'm assuming.
0: Yeah, it's mostly GI. This is one of the ones where they had the rapid onset. Um, it can range from 30 minutes to eight hours, but it's going to come quick. Um, and this is, again, severe vomiting, um, nausea, abdominal cramps. Um, you know, that's what you're going to see. Like, and they like to say that the symptoms are powerful, mm. um, but it's going to resolve quickly. So you're going to get real sick and feel better very quick as well.
1: Okay. Um, your body's just we going to get saying it before,
0: out. Yep, and we said before it's not contagious. You're not going to give it to someone else that way. Um, and I, and again, it gets for this it goes back to uh, fluid loss. Mm. Um, but because of the short duration, that generally isn't the problem with some of the others that can go on for days where you see this uh, you know, this this huge loss of, of fluid.
1: And prevention, I know that uh, a lot of things will apply similar to the other foodborne illnesses, but what are some things specific to staff that we can do for prevention?
0: Uh, well, big things start with cross-contamination. Um, and so the handling of different foods, you're getting a lot of things uh, um, contaminated with that. So, you're, you know, in these cases, that's why we're wearing our gloves. We're doing uh-huh. the hand hygiene, um, you know, so it's it's proper sort of uh Handling procedures, um, and then it you know it's really about uh, cooking. So um, you can kill this with cooking. Uh, and keep in mind that it it's it can live through a it can survive in, and um, reproduce and in a broad range of, of temperatures from um, forty to one hundred forty. That becomes our sort of temperature danger zone. And so that forty to one hundred forty is the area where this can grow and multiply. Um, so, and this is generally the case with most things. There's only a couple where this doesn't work, but if you're taking the the food to above 140 or storing it below 40 degrees, you're generally safe. Um, okay. There are some pathogens where that's not the case. Um, but, but in this case, it's proper handling of food and proper cooking temperatures. And then there's not an issue. Um,
1: okay. I've heard something about shallow containers. Is that...
0: Right. It, you know, this, no, it, it's, it's an interesting So the, the shallow, so if you have a very deep container, um, the temperature in the middle of that container is going to be very different than the temperature at the outside of the container. Ah. Um, and so if you're putting things in a shallow container, those, there's going to be uniformity to that temperature. Um, and so that you can expect that all of that food has been at an appropriate temperature the whole time as refrigerated. Whereas a you know, big bowl of something, that middle temperature could be elevated for hours and hours until it finally cools down. Huh. Um, and so they talk about in some of these, they talk about that as a specific strategy. But in reality, that's a, a good strategy for pretty much anything you're refrigerating. Um, when it comes to preventing pathogens or, or organism growth in the refrigerator.
1: Great. Okay. Thank you so much, Kirk. I uh, can't thank you enough, but I enjoyed this conversation. And like I said, some of this I knew and some of it was a big surprise. And I know that's probably the case for a lot of our listeners. So thank you for your expertise. You're
0: very welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: And thank you for listening to our podcast series on managing foodborne illness. We encourage you to explore all of the many courses available on EliteLearning.com as you move forward throughout your career. This is Leanna McGuire for Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare.
0: This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.